Now, I want to remind us of our mission. Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want everybody to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and, and just make their life all about Christ, who is the King. So we're continuing in our, in our series through Romans. We're calling this how, uh, how God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And I've said this enough times, so hopefully you remember that we're not good. That Christ is good. He's the only one that's good. And we are imputed with his righteousness upon faith in Jesus Christ. So what is the book of Romans about? It's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 3 through 8 this morning. A sermon I'm calling, How to Be Used by God. Okay, so as you're, you're getting your, your Bibles there, I came across a picture this week. Don't bring it up yet. A little, little warning. Get ready. Get your finger on the button. Um... It was, I don't know who this pastor is, but he was preaching through some of Paul's epistles, and this is how he summed up Paul's teaching. Go ahead and give me this picture. I don't know who he is, but if you can't see that, let me read it for you. It says, the general Pauline letter outline. So he's given the outlining of Paul's letter. He says, grace. That's how Paul always starts his letters. Grace. And then it says, I thank God for you, the second point. The third point he puts on there, he says, hold fast to the gospel. After the third point, he puts the fourth point, which is, for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Okay, I heard that. I'm, I was rolling on the floor. That was hilarious. And then he closes. This is how he closes. And Timothy says hi. <laughs> I thought that's why, because I think all these weeks I've been in Romans, I thought that was hilarious. Okay, I was dying. I probably thought way more of that than most people. But that's what happens when you spend like six months in one of Paul's letters. Because I, I picture Timothy. I, Paul's writing his letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to Corinth about how there's this old boy that's having relations with his mother-in-law. And he's like, kick him out. Or excuse me, stepmom. Kick him out of church. Kick. And Timothy's like, Paul, tell him I said hi. I will. Give me a second. And you're, they're getting drunk at church. Knock it off. Paul, tell him I said hi. And Timothy says hi. That's how I picture it. I was dying. I don't know if you appreciate it as much as I do, but that's okay. So we're continuing in this series through the book of Romans. Two weeks ago, we, we started Romans chapter 12, okay? And, and Paul has taken us up to this point through the first 11 chapters. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul is essentially teaching us. He's teaching us theology about who Jesus is and what he's done and how this all went down. And by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, there's something you should be doing with the information that Paul has taught us. What I'm saying is if you understand Romans 1 through 11, by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, it's time to get to work. Okay? Well, if you remember back in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, Paul told us that we are to be living sacrifices. That our, that our bodies are not our own, that we're, our life is basically a blank check, and that you can worship God properly with your body if you allow your thought life to be transformed. Now, if you think about it, that's not an easy task. <laughs> that's not an easy task, but the only proper response, excuse me, response, if you understand that you've been saved from an eternal hell and made fit for an eternal heaven with Christ forever for your ever home, that's what he started in the first two verses. But yet there's still more for us to do. With that, let's read Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. The Word of God says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, 
And the members do not all have the same function, so that we ought, oh, excuse me, though, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, the, the, and individually members of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to you, let us use them. If prophecy in portion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You know, today there's a lot of debate in Christianity, and the debate comes down um, about gifts that are given to, by, to believers by the Holy Spirit. People ask questions like, well, can believers speak in tongues today? They'll say, can believers do di different miracles? All the different miracles that we see, especially through the book of Acts, can believers do that today? Well, if we can or if we can't, that's really a message for another day. But very clearly, based off Scripture, what we just read there in Romans 12, 3 through 8, there's something that believers should be doing. Think about this. Paul writes this letter around 57 A.D. Okay? Jesus died for the sins of mankind about two and a half, half decades earlier. And since then, the believers at that time have done some earth-shattering things for the sake of the gospel. And I would argue that it's not primarily because of miracle upon miracle upon miracle that they were getting this done. I mean, it, it was to some degree, and again, you can read about that in Acts. But I believe it's largely because believers were being obedient to taking this charge of, of the, of that Christ gave to go and make disciples. And think about this. The, the first century church, they didn't have the tools that we have today. They didn't have a state-of-the-art audiovisual um, platform to get this message out. I mean, we got people streaming from other states, possibly other countries right now. They didn't have this comfortable seating to come and hear the word preached. You all should be very grateful we have these cushy chairs to sit in, right? They didn't have air conditioning. We got air conditioning. Uh, in fact, they didn't even have the full canon of Scripture, nicely bound in, in a leather-bonded book to read the Bible. They didn't even have this. They definitely didn't have cars to drive them to the Sunday morning services, right? Now, I'm not suggesting we should do away with those things. That's something that cults say. I love all these things I just mentioned. I, I think we should keep them. But what did they have? Th think about this. They were just a small group of people who were really relatively hated by society. Now, some of them had money and some of them did not. Most of them did not. But they didn't have huge church buildings. They didn't have booming kids programs. They were just a small group of believers that really impacted the world. They turned the world upside down for the sake of the gospel. How did they do it? Well, the answer is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and through them as they worked in unison using the gifts that God has given them to tell the lost world about Him. And I would argue, sadly... The church today isn't quite doing it like the first century church. The first century church isn't quite having the same impact in the lost and dying world like the first century church did. What's the difference? So, so the question comes down, as some would argue, like I said earlier, the, the charismatics versus the non-charismatics. And the charismatics would, would ask you, well, what about the gifting of the Holy Spirit? Did that stop or did something else 
And I could hear the argument from some of the crowd. They would say, well, Pastor John, that's because, you know, like in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul was taking a sweaty old do-rag, and he's sending it off, and so there's some old boy that's sick somewhere else, and he gets that sweaty old do-rag, and he's immediately healed, and then he professes Jesus Christ as a, as a Savior. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say that was pretty cool. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing that would happen, but how about this? Today, we have the ability to, to jump in an airplane and be in another continent and preach the gospel message. That today, we can preach the gospel anywhere, anytime, to, to anyone at a moment's notice. You know, that, that getting an airplane going to another continent, I think the, the first century church would kind of label that as a miracle, right? But yet, the first century church is getting it done. The question is, what is the difference What's making the difference? Well, like I talked about earlier, that, that debate gets boiled down. The, the, the charismatics versus the non-charismatic crowd. And then maybe you grew up in a church that would major on the charis- what I would call the charismatic side. They would say, well, the Holy Spirit used to do miracles, and we're not doing those anymore. And so that's why the church isn't having an impact on the lost world. Or maybe you grew up in a fundamental, what I would label a fundamental church that would major on preaching and teaching. And so then the argument that made by that crowd to be very, very different than the charismatic crowd. But here's my question. Are those two mutually exclusive? Are they? I sometimes jokingly, jokingly refer to myself as Baptocostal. Okay? I like to major on preaching and teaching and still at the same time leave room for God the Holy Spirit to, to move in any way he sees fit. Years ago, I, w- I was at the gym, and I'm, I'm working out. This is back in California, and I struck up a conversation with a, with a young man with the intent purpose of sharing the gospel with him. And, and speaking with him, I soon discovered, well, he's a believer. And so I asked him, hey, what's the name of the church you go to? And he told me the name of his church, and I'm very familiar with that church. And that church was much, much more charismatic than the church I was an associate pastor at. And so then he asked me the name of my church, and I told him the name of my church, and which, which church he was very familiar with. And he said this, he said, oh, you go to the church that doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I know, right? That's why I was like, oh. I said, I said no, no, no. We believe in the Holy Spirit, only I believe he is God. And so he tells me what to do, I don't tell him what to do. Can you see the difference? The Holy Spirit, he is God. He's the member of the Trinity. So he calls the shots. I don't tell the omnipotent ruler, the creator of the universe, what he should be doing. It's the other way around. Well, in order for us to reach this town, I believe God has established this church, and this church God has to reach the town of Warren. If we're going to do that, to really see the, the results, I think we have to understand what we're talking about here. Here's what I'm talking about here. I believe that we reach and we preach and we teach the gospel with everything we've got. We do this every man, woman, and child. We do it with everything we got. I mean, we tell them all. We do everything and anything outside of sin so that everybody will hear this gospel message with everything we got that, that salvation comes by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We do everything we can and then we pray God does the rest. We just preach and we just teach with everything we've got and we just, we just pray that God will take this meager little effort, this, this worthless little nothing that we do and then God's going to use it to work supernaturally in the hearts and minds and souls of those in our, in our town. We just pray that God will, will use what we do so the people that don't know will come to know. 
I heard a story of a young pastor, and this young pastor loved to preach. And he would go into his study every, every day, and he would, he would study, and he would write, and he would study, and he would prepare for that Sunday morning sermon. And then he would take that pulpit every Sunday, and he would just spit fire. Great sermons. He was just preaching his heart out week after week after week, and it seemed like nothing's really happening. And so after a while, he got really despondent about this. So he went to an old pastor friend of his, and he told him his woes, what's going on, and seems like nobody's getting saved. And his old pastor friend said, well, you didn't believe everybody was going to get saved, do you? The young pastor thought and said, no, I didn't think everybody's going to get saved. The old pastor said, that's your problem. You have to preach, and you have to teach, and you have to reach, and you have to believe that God's going to save every single one of them. I mean, like, hold on, God, what he did with Nineveh, save the whole town. I think that's what we have to do. We have to preach, and we have to teach, and we have to reach the town of Orland with everything we got, and just expect God's going to save them all. But here's something I want you to know. God, the real God, the, the creator of the universe, he's a big God. He works outside of our time and space and outside the confines of our feeble little human brains. But what some people do is they interpret God based off of their experiences or lack thereof of God. People say things like, well, I've never seen God do that before. I've never seen God do this before. What is a much better approach is to, is to base what you know off of God, what is found in his word. Because if we base what we think and know of God based off of what's we found in, our, in the Bible, then we're never going to go wrong if we're interpreting this way, this thing, this book, the way that he's intended us to. Again, stick to the word of God and you will never go wrong. Well, here in Romans chapter 12, we're reading about these gifts that God has given to believers. Remember? Romans 1 through 11, as Paul was teaching us, and by the time we get to Romans chapter 12, there's something we should be doing with the, with the knowledge that God has given us, and now we're talking about these gifts, that God has given gifts to believers, and we are to use these to tell people about him. Now, here's something I need you to know. My gifts are not your gifts, and your gifts are not my gifts. We're all gifted, but we're all gifted differently. And here's the thing. Every believer is given at least one gift. Some people have more, but you're given at least one to use for him in the building of his kingdom. There's a lot of people that come from what I call the charismatic crowd that they think that the gifts are the goal. They believe and they will teach, they will say that all believers should be using all the gifts all the time, whenever they want, with no rules, no regulations. Just all the believers going crazy with all these gifts that we've, we hear about in our Bibles. And they will go so far as to say something along the lines of, well, if you don't have the showy gifts, I call them showy gifts, ones that look good on the outside, well, that's because you're not saved. They will say that. They'll say, oh, you're not speaking in tongues? Well, that's because you're not saved. Oh, you're not doing various miracles of whatever kind? That's because you're not saved. And that goes against what the Bible teaches. To have some gift of the Holy Spirit, whatever that might be, that's not the goal. To speak in tongues or to cure somebody of a disease, that's not the goal. Well, then you're, what's the goal, Pastor John? Hopefully by the end of this message, you will understand what the goal is. Let me start by asking you this. What's your, what's your gift? How has God uniquely gifted you post-salvation? 
Maybe you should be asking yourself, what is my gift? How has God gifted me? And if I don't know my gifts, how do I come to know my gifts? How do I put myself in a position where I can know how God has gifted me? Again, hopefully that's the question we will answer by the end of this message. Pick up your Bibles again, Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measurement of faith that God has assigned. Here's my first point this morning. Point number one, start by being humble. Start by being humble. It really should go without saying, but unfortunately I have to say it, so I'm going to say it. Start by being humble. And that is this, nothing can put you on full stop any quicker, any sooner than really this, this, this sense of pride and arrogance. Paul has spent, the Apostle Paul has spent 11 chapters of this book telling us that we're sinners. And the only way to be saved is by God's undeserved, amazing, astounding, awesome, spectacular grace. It's by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came as he was tortured and murdered on a cross. That if you believe that, then you were adopted into God's forever family. And we're seated with him forever in eternity. I came across this, uh, this quote by a theologian by the name of J.I. Packer. Do we have that? Do we have it or have to, I have to read it? I think I have to read it. I'll just read it for you here. J.I. Packard said this. He said, quote, listen, this just blew my socks off. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. A traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given a family name. To be right with God the judge is, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You see, we, are in, we were at one point enemies of God. We were not in his family. We had basically spit in his face, and our whole life was in opposition to God. But then when we place faith in Christ, we recognize what he's done for us in our place, we are adopted into his family. See, but then what some people do is they, they come to realize that, and all of this makes them very proud. It makes them very arrogant. When we begin to think that we're something special, and that's why God chose to use us, that he saw us, like, like God saw us and went, man, I'm just going to give that person, that believer, this gift because they're so awesome and they're so much better than some other child of mine. They're going to take that and they're just going to do great things for me because they're so good. When we come to that place, whoa, God's going to put you in your place. We start thinking like that. Paul said not to think high, what's me, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. That's what Paul said. This is what I want you to know. That God can take any of us and he could take us out in a blink of an eye, less than a blink of an eye, and replace us if he so chose to. You know, sometimes God does just that. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, we see a husband and wife team by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They, they sold this piece of property, and then they went and they lied to the church. Oh, yeah, we, we did that. We're, we're, we gave you all the money, and God smoked them on the spot. That would change the offering time at the end of the service if God did that today, wouldn't it? People just dropping over dead? No, we'll leave that to God. But anyways, have you ever wondered this? Like, why does God choose to use me at all? 
Have you ever thought, well, couldn't God do a better job some other way? Like, couldn't God use the angels? Wouldn't that be a better way to get this gospel message? I mean, picture thousands upon thousands of angels just circling, circling the globe at, at the time, just in unison chanting out the gospel. Wouldn't that be a better way to get the gospel message out? I could talk for the next several hours about ways that I think would be a better way to get this gospel message out, but yet he chooses to work through redeemed people. Not only that, but people that would hear this good news and would make them proud and make them arrogant. I mean, I got to ask God, isn't there a better way? Obviously, that's the best way because that's the way that he's chosen to go, right? But look how Paul begins verse 3. He says, for by the grace given to me. It's through grace that God has, has given to us what he's given to us, and he's chosen to give us the gifts that he has given. Now, I need you to know the gifts that God gives us is not on base of merit. You don't earn them. I don't earn them. We definitely don't deserve them, and yet God still gives them to us. And yet Scripture is so crystal clear, these warnings about becoming proud. If God gifts you or I in any way, that should never make us proud. Should never. And, and, and that God would choose to use us as human vessels. Let me say it's definitely not out of necessity, but it's out of a desire. That's why God has gifted us the way he has. It's his desire. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. You know, I can think of a couple dozen home improvement projects that I could have done better and faster and easier myself, but yet I chose to use my kids. And I know they're sitting there going, I wish you'd stop doing that, Dad. I know. But I'm trying to, to train them up. I'm trying to teach them something. I'm trying to teach them something about work ethic and a desire to do something. What, what if I did it all myself? I, I can tell you what I would have. I'd have incredibly um, enabled um, little spoiled brats that I'd be unleashing on the world. That's what would be happening. And my wife and I have had this conversation a couple dozens of times, because if you don't know my wife, my wife is the world heavyweight champ at laundry. She can wash, dry, fold, and put away clothes better than anybody I know. It's like, just get out of her way. I mean, she's going to get it done. But if she does it all the time, we'd have kids that have amazing clothes, but are terribly entitled, Right? God could easily preach this gospel message without me. I guarantee he'd do a better job than I do, but yet he chooses to use a wretch like me to study and prepare a message and then deliver it to you. I know that you'd rather have King Jesus up here preaching every Sunday. I know that. I'd rather be in the audience watching with you, but yet he chooses to work through me. And if this calling ever makes me proud... Honestly, I pray God hits me right between the eyes with a bolt of lightning. Just take me out. Recently, there's been a number of very highly acclaimed pastors that have had moral failures. I mean, these are a couple guys that I mean, I've admired. and listened. One guy, I bet I've heard more of his messages than some of the members of his church. And I've grown incredibly by, by these men's ministries. And they had a moral failure which disqualified them from ever being a pastor ever again. That hurt me deep, deeply. It hurts the gospel. And it's just terrible all the way around. And you got to, why? Why did they fall? Here's the answer. Pride. They thought in their minds, they're like, I'm so good. Look how God's using me. And that is a slippery slope to no place good. What should happen is we should come to realize that it's a privilege, it's an honor that, that God might 
use us in any way, as an instrument in any capacity. He doesn't use us because of any skill or ability. It's because of his power working through you. And if somebody ever forgets that, then what's going to happen is their, their work's going to fall on deaf ears. They're going to have zero impact to the kingdom of God. And it's a quick slide to some place where a person is neck deep in sin, which disqualifies them from being used by God again. It's only when God is working in us and through us could we be an effective witness to our, to our town. Read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. The word of God says, Towards the scorner, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. You know what that means? That means you can never be too small to be used by God. You can never be too small, but you can very quick become too big in your britches for God to use. So what I think I should pray, you should pray, we should pray, God, keep me humble. That should be our prayer. But then when we pray that prayer, don't forget, don't, don't forget that prayer, because what's going to happen is he's going to orchestrate our lives to keep us humble. And it always seems he does that in ways I really don't want him to do. I'm praying, hey, God, take that away from me. Take this away. He's like, I've given that to you to keep you humble. You see, if you begin to think that you and your ministry is all that in a bag of chips, that's when you fall. The most damaging thing for believers is to become arrogant and prideful and begin to think that they are somehow God's gift. I've heard it said that, that pride is the one disease that makes everybody sick but the person who has it. I heard a story about Muhammad Ali, and if you don't know who Muhammad Ali is, get out from underneath a rock. But anyways, he is the greatest boxer of all times, and the stories of him are legendary, but the stories of him are never for his humility. The story goes that there's a time he was on an airplane. He's on this plane, and there got, there's some turbulence came on, 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 the, on the flight, and the captain got on the intercom and said, yeah, this is the captain speaking. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn on the fasten the seatbelt sign. We're about to hit some turbulence, and, and then when this turbulence is over, we're going to turn that back off. You can go about the cabin. So thank you very much. Everybody complied except... Ali, how was my captain impersonation? Was that good? Thank you, thank you. Wish Chris Brewer was here. He could, he could really rate me if I was good on that. But anyways, so everybody complied except Ali, and the flight attendant came to Ali and said, hey, champ, the captain has asked that everybody ought to buckle their seatbelts. And story goes that Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant, without skipping a beat, said, yeah, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> Stay humble. Keep reading verse 4 of Romans chapter 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we ought, so we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, everyone's role is important, but everyone doesn't have the same role. It is important to, to, to use the gifts that God has given you to impact people. You see, the Bible compares our involvement to the church with like being a family. There's many, many parts of the Bible where it says that we are a family. But right here in Romans, Paul's talking about this church like it's a body. Because in the body, there's many parts, and those parts make up a body. For example, I think most of us in this room today, we have hands. 
There might be some, ex from some exceptions, but most of us have four fingers and, and a thumb on each hand, right? Because fingers can do things that thumbs can't, and thumbs can do things that fingers can't, but it works best if you have four fingers and a thumb, right? And if any of those body parts are missing, the body notices, right? The appendix is an organ that doesn't do a lot in the body, but if it gets sick, you notice real quick. And if Brenner was here, he would say amen. He's downstairs right now, right? If you don't know, Brenner Barthmas had an appendix, he had his appendix removed. He would be amen in that right now. But anyways, if something goes wrong in the body, if it's not dealt with real soon, the body not only suffers, but could actually die. The same is true with the body of Christ. What we need is for not all of the members not only to be healthy, but be productive. And if all the, the members are healthy and productive, then the body grows. And when the body grows, that's when it's healthy. And you're thinking, well, how does that apply to me, Pastor John? It works like this. If you're a member of this church and you refuse to, to rise up, if you refuse to step up, if you refuse to serve, if you refuse to be active in the body, this is what you're doing. You're hurting the body. And anybody that knowingly hurts the body, that's called sin. If you say, I don't want to be a hand, I want to be an eye, that hurts the body. If you say, I don't like being a toe, I want to be the mouth, that hurts the body. This is where someone says, if, because I didn't get the job I want, so I'm just not going to serve. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything until I get to do what I want to do. You know what you're doing? You're hurting the body. And when somebody's hurting the body, think about, think about exactly who they're hurting. They're hurting the person that sits next to them in church. Look to your left. Look to your right. Do it. Go ahead. Do it. Those are people they're hurting. They're also hurting the person that's a new Christian. That new Christian needs to learn the Bible. That's who they're hurting. They're hurting that little boy, that little girl that has their entire Christian life in front of them. That's who they're hurting. But they're also hurting the person that's not a member of the body yet. That person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're hurting that person. And you're thinking, well, instead of that, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says, rather, rather than hurt the body, this is what you should be doing. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way un into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together but by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it's built, builds itself up in love. That's what we're to be doing. Instead of folding our arms, instead of being too busy to serve, that's what we're to be doing. And guess what? None of us are the head. I'm not the head. You're not the head. Jesus Christ is the head. You know what that means? That means he calls the shots. He tells the body what to do, and the body follows. Now, when a body part doesn't do what a body part is told to do by the head, that's called paralysis. That's never a good thing. Paralysis is bad, but when one body part is trying to take over another body part, that's called cancer. And if a cancer isn't cut out, it will kill the body. Let me, let me give you probably the strongest example I know from the, from the Bible of an example of this. That's of Satan. If, if you didn't know this, Satan was in heaven. He, he had a great position, but he didn't like his position. He wanted a position different than the one he had. 
It wasn't his, but yet he still wanted it. I mean, if you know his position, he was the worship leader in heaven, leading all the angels in worship of the one true God. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 14, where there is five times where Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And the fifth one, he said, I will make myself like the most high. That's when he's cast out of heaven. Satan said, I don't want to serve in my purpose. I don't want to fulfill the role that God has given to me. I want to be the boss. I want to call the shots. I don't like where I am supposed to be. And that's when he fell. But have you ever wondered why God has put us where he's put us? It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body. Each one of them as he chose. You know what that means? That means God has put you exactly where he wants you. He put you there for a reason. He's gifted you with the talents that he has gifted you. And so now your job is to do your job. Fulfill your role in the body. And so the question of, of, your, of your function in the body, if you're, if you're questioning God, what you're saying is you're trying to usurp God. You're trying to kick God off of his throne. And don't do that. Because a hand should never say to an eye, I don't need you. And the neck shouldn't say to the feet, I don't need you. So there should be no division in the body. There should be equal concern for all the other body parts. And each and every part is important. You know what that means? You're important. It doesn't matter what your role is, you're important. Visible or invisible, you're all important. And right now we got some people down working the nursery. I can't see them. Let me tell you, they're pretty important. If all of a sudden we had a stampede of little kids, it's going to stop the service real quick. So we, everybody's needed. When you serve in your purpose to the body of Christ, what you're doing is you're enabling the body of Christ to do things that we couldn't do otherwise. So that means you're important. That means you're needed in the body. That means, it also means if you're not serving as part of the body of Christ, if you're not being used for your purpose that you're made for, there are things that we can't do that we'd otherwise be able to do if you're willing to serve. Our very purpose in life as human beings, as followers of Christ, is to know God and to love God. And do you want to know how our love for God is manifested? It's not in the words we say to him, our manifest, the manifestation of our love is seen in how we serve him. And if we're refusing to serve him for any reason, then what we're doing is we're withholding our love for God. I mean, I would never withhold the affection for my wife, but yet there's times when we are willing to withhold our affection to God. Don't do that. Think about this. What if every single person in this room right now, we just made up our mind, we said, I'm going to find my purpose. I'm going to fulfill my role. I'm going to start serving. I'm just going to start believing that God's going to take whatever it is that I do, that he does through me, and use it for amazing things for the glory of God. If we did that, I'd argue there's no end to what we could do for the kingdom of God. Don't we pray for stuff like that all the time? I've been to many, many prayer meetings where we pray, God, do something. Do something to, to save our town. God, do something to change the hearts and minds of the, all the kids at our, at our schools. Do something. Well, here's how we do that. Do your role. Do your role in this church. 
Because in this church, we have hands and feet and eyes and mouths. We also have some necks and livers and kidneys, but we need all of you. We need all of you, every single one. So go forth and do your role, because we need all of you. Keep reading. Go to verse 6 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's point number three for us this morning. Point number three, in order to do your job, you must do it with passion. Do you see what Paul says in verse 8? He uses the word zeal. He uses the word cheerfulness. This is the new Pastor John translation. I say passion. Even when my wife kisses me, I don't want it to be a chore to her. I want her to enjoy doing it, so I better shower. That's a message for another day. But no, I want her to love kissing me, right? Well, that's how ministry should be in the church. It should, we should have passion when, when we're doing it. One of my very first roles in the church uh, as, a, as, a, as actually serving, I had, was a teacher for vacation Bible school. This was years ago. I took a week off of vacation. I said, I'm going to teach fifth grade boys for, for a week. And I had like 22 or 24 boys. It's a huge VBS. And I could tell you so many stories about those young men. Today, two of my, the boys that I taught are youth pastors. One in Los Angeles, one in San Diego. And when it's all said and done, I think those boys taught me more than I, than, than I taught them. But anyways, it, it was a, a vacation Bible school. It was Saddle Ridge Ranch. So it was a cowboy-themed VBS. Maybe some of you remember that one years ago. Well, for the big close, the, the final close, my senior pastor brought a horse, a little pony, into the sanctuary. And if you're familiar with horses, horses bring problems. Those problems come in the form of apples. These aren't the apples you probably, it's horse apples. And so he gave me a job. He handed me a snow shovel and said, John, if that horse lifts his tail, you know what to do. I immediately became the chairman of the apple catching committee. Now, I didn't have to catch any apples that day, but man, it made for a great story all these years later. But here Paul lists a number of different roles in the church. And I think what Paul's point is everyone's different. Everyone's different, but everyone is needed. That means, you know what, a great preacher might not be the best counselor. And that means that the generous giver might not be a great Sunday school teacher. So when we identify our gift, we just need to use it to, and ask, well, how is this going to build up God's family? You know, how, do, how am I gifted? How am I going to be used? And then you just you get busy serving the family of God. You get, you get busy in the, in the ministry and you allow your strengths to be balanced by your weaknesses. And what you, have, what you need to do is you just use however you're gifted passionately. You know, if I was in a hospital bed, I, I would want, hey, God, send somebody that can work miracles and I could just walk out of this place. But then maybe he sends somebody with the gift of encouragement. You know what that tells me? I needed to be encouraged at that time. That's what I needed. You know, if we're doing a big building project, I need somebody with some organizational skills and maybe not necessarily somebody who's talented in teaching. But here's what we need to know. Every single gift has a place. Every, every gift has its place, and it is, I think it's used best if it's used for the fullness of God. 
we just would be sold out and, and serve passionately. But then at the same time, I think it's a little insulting if we start asking for things that we don't have. Asking God to gift us in ways that we aren't necessarily gifted. Years ago, I went on a mission trip to Bogota, Colombia. And if you were with us last week, Pastor Phil Kern, he, uh, he leads an organization called Good News in Action where they're planting churches all over Central and South America. Well, I was on the team, that, the first team that went to Bogota, Colombia. And that week we took a trip. We went to a uh, retirement home. And we're in this retirement home, and I'm going to guess, this is just a shot in the dark, I think there was about 100 individuals that lived in this home. And Pastor David, he, he was the pastor of that church. He preached the gospel, and he gave the invitation. It seemed like every hand in the room went up. They, they want to accept Christ. It's like it was overwhelming. And then he said, okay, all the, trans, uh, all the, the, the people like me, the gringos, go with your translators and talk to the people. Well, I go, and I've got about 10 or 12 people, and I'm trying to share the gospel with them. And what's going on is I'm slowing my translator down. Because the truth is, I know he can preach the gospel every bit as good as me. So I told him, I said, you just take it and I'll just stand here. And so he's leading, he's talking, sharing the gospel in Spanish with these individuals. And there was an old man. This old man came to me and he tapped me on, on the shoulder. And, and through charades, I figure out he wants me to follow him. And so I follow this old man. He takes me out in this courtyard and there's this big old garden. He's going and he's, he's, he's pointing at different vegetables and he's calling out what it is. He, he's showing me. His garden, and I remember he said, lechuga. I remember that one, that's lettuce. I remember from my like, freshman Spanish class, but my Spanish is horrible. And I, I started to pray. I said, God, give me a biblical gift of tongues. Give me the gift of tongues so I can preach in English, and he would hear the message in Spanish, and he could be saved. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I opened my mouth, and you know what happened? Nothing. It was just, it was just English. He, he didn't hear any of it. And I am convinced that if God wanted me to have that, I would have had it in a moment's notice. My point is that God must not have wanted me to have that showy gift. I was just simply a nice guy to an old man that lived in a retirement home that wanted to show his garden off. And while I did that, my interpreter led four or five or six people to Christ. And that should bring me tons of joy to know I did my part. I did everything I, I was supposed to do, and that's it. So here's the question. Think about this. What would this church like church look like if everybody looked just like you? If everybody did just like me? That'd be a boring church. That's what would be going on there. Everyone is gifted, but not everyone's gifted in the, in the same way. So what are your gifts that the Holy Spirit, God, the third member of the Trinity, has given to you? You need to identify your individual purpose within this body of Christ and then use the, how you're gifted to its fullest. And you need to know that what you do for the body is important. Now, if you're not serving in any way in this church, this is what you do. Ask me. Ask Pastor Jess. Ask Sam. Ask, and we'll get you plugged in somewhere, and then get involved. Start shadowing somebody. See what they do, and you'll learn. And if that's not the ministry for you, you'll know. And then just go try something else, and keep doing that until you find where you're supposed to be. But this is what's going on in the church today. Not just this church, but this church universal. Too many people are consumers instead of servants. Consuming and not communing. They're, they're spectators instead of participants. They're customers instead of disciples. I don't know if you've ever heard this illustration, but the church has been, 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 and, and, and been, been compared to a battleship. Because if you don't know this, we're at war. 
We're at war for the souls of the men and women in this town. But so many church members treat the, the, the battleship more like a cruise ship. Just lounging on the chair, asking for somebody to bring them a drink with a little umbrella in it. Wouldn't that be wild to think of a battleship during World War II taking shells, taking enemy fire, and a sailor going, hey, can I get, can I get this? Can I get that? Hey, I don't like the way this is going. It doesn't suit me. That's ridiculous. We all need to be doing our role in the body. And I want you to know, to this day, to this very day, God's power is still alive and well in the church. Let me tell you about the greatest power of God. That's the power to change lives. You know this power I'm talking about? To recognize that Jesus Christ, third member or second member of the Trinity, sent by the first member to come and die in our place for our sins. And if we, can, if we place faith in what he did, we can be saved. The Bible says that whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So if you've never done that, that's where it starts. It starts with an acknowledgement of who you are and what Christ has done in your place. Have you called in the name of the Lord? If you haven't done that, I would ask you to do that now. To cry out to him, to say, dear God, I'm a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from you. But you love me. You died for me. I give you my life. I place my faith in, in what Jesus did for me on the cross. Save me my sins. I pray this in his holy, precious name. Amen.